Luke chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. You know, that phrase, that, that, that verse upsets the Calvinists. Because they would tell you that this is uh, good tidings of great joy, which shall be to an elect group of people. But the Word of God says it shall be to all people. I'm thankful that it's to all people, aren't you? Uh, because, and you ought to be thankful, otherwise you might have wound up not being one of the elect. Amen? <laughs> But it's a whosoever will salvation. I'm thankful for that this morning. But verse number 11 is where we'll take our text. The Bible says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want you to glorify your Son this morning in this service. Father, I want you to uplift Him high and holy in our hearts and minds. I pray, Father, that you would do a work that we'll not soon forget. Lord, that you'd make known to us the great and vast uh, truths of your word. Lord, if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone without Calvary, Lord, and if they're without Calvary, they are lost and undone. I pray you'd show them their need of the Savior. Lord, I pray that you'd just reclaim the backslidden, uplift those that are downtrodden, Lord, and abase those that are haughty. Meet every need, Father, according to your will. We'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask all this in the precious and magnificent name of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a story that I believe has probably gotten more traffic than just about any story in the Word of God. Uh, Some of you this Christmas season will sit down with loved ones and you'll open your Bible to Luke chapter 2 and you'll read the same story that your parents read to you and their parents read to them. I'm probably this morning not going to tell you any groundbreaking truths. At least uh, they're not truths that to us are uh, unfamiliar or unknown. But this morning I just want to take a few moments and I want to look at what the angel said here. Uh, Do you believe that the Word of God is inspired? I believe that this morning. I believe not only that it's inspired, but that it's preserved. I believe that every single word of this King James Bible is exactly what it ought to be. I don't believe any of it needs to be changed or altered for my comprehension or understanding. I believe it's exactly what it ought to be. You say, preacher, what do you do if you don't understand something? Well, I change my understanding. I don't try to change what God said. Doesn't that just make sense? I mean, we'd do that with anyone, wouldn't we? Uh, they got in a lot of trouble over there with old Mandela's funeral. And think about him what you will. I've got my own opinions, but they got some old goofy fella got up there and just started waving his arms, acting like he was an interpreter. 
My goodness, you'd think they'd have better security. I can't remember how many thousands of people were gathered in this place. Uh, they're just lucky it wasn't somebody with a bomb, amen? They probably could have got in too, but this fellow gets up there and he's waving people into third base and nobody knows the difference, you know? And he was misrepresenting what was being said. Well, you say, what should we do about that? Should we have changed the speaker's words to fit his interpretation? No, that'd be foolishness. No, you just change your interpretation and understanding. That's what you do. Uh, you align yourself with what the, the speaker is saying. Amen. I believe that's what we ought to do with the Word of God. I believe we ought to align our understanding and our beliefs. You say, preacher, are you not saying there's archaic words? Well, sure, there's archaic words, but uh, the Bible says, I am the Lord God uh, that liveth, and I change not. It's not him that's become archaic. It's us that's become irrelevant. Amen. We've become out of touch with the God of heaven. I think we need to change our understanding. But as I read the Word of God, conscious of this truth, I am aware that there is a specific reason for every single word in the Word of God. And it's not there by accident. And so as I read verse 11, I am struck by the threefold title that is given to Jesus Christ. Notice it again, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. Now, I would say, first off, that we know these are titles. They are not proper names. The proper name that was given to our Lord and Savior was the name Jesus, or we might call it Jeshua. And it was, uh, the, the name means Jehovah is salvation. That was his human name. That would have been the name uh, that those that did not know him very well would have called him. Uh, the very same way that you have your name, and names have distinct meanings for a reason. But these are not names that are given, but these are titles that are given. You say, what is the difference? Well, uh, a name identifies a person, but a title identifies an office. It identifies not just who they are, but what they are, what they mean in the context of humanity. And that's what we have in this passage. Three titles are given to our Lord. The Bible says a Savior, a Savior. Well, I'm thankful He's a Savior. I, I tell you, I, it don't bother me one bit for the Lord to tell me I need a Savior as long as He'll be a Savior to me. Amen? And then it says, which is Christ. That's another title that's given. We'll talk about it in a moment. And then I like this, Christ the Lord. The Lord. You know, we use that terminology a lot. We'll say our Lord, the Lord our Lord and Savior, but what does it mean? Well, this morning, I just want to take each of these three titles and say a quick word about them. First, the Bible calls our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, a Savior. The word Savior is someone that rescues you from someone uh, or from something. Uh, if you need a Savior, it implies some things. And the Bible gives us this title, Savior. And I would say, first off, that we have a title of acceptance that is given. Do you know that the sinner is born without God? Now, that's contrary to the belief of modern society. And I was talking to our young people uh, this morning in Sunday school, and we were talking about the true purpose of Christmas and the truth and theme around Christmas. The theme around Christmas, friend, uh, is not trees and tinsel and presents and eggnog. Uh, it's not parties and family. Uh, uh, the theme around Christmas is not candy canes. Uh, I ain't got a problem with candy canes now, friend. Don't misunderstand me. But that's not the theme. The theme is that of the incarnation of the Son of God. That's what took place at this time of Christmas. God was made flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's the theme around uh, Christianity. Uh, but do you know today that not everyone believes that? 
In fact, I would go a step further and say that there's more people that don't believe it than there are that do. You'd be amazed how many people reject the deity of Jesus Christ. You'd be amazed how many people, and it's alarming whenever you look at statistics in Southern Baptist seminaries of how many young people go in believing in the virgin birth and how few young men come out believing in the virgin birth. That's alarming, friend. You say, you say that because you're an independent Baptist. No, I say that because I'm a fundamentalist and I believe in the virgin birth. That alarms me. I mean, we ought to believe in the virgin birth. I wouldn't think there would be any question. I mean, it says it right there that he was born of a virgin. But, you know, when you don't believe that the Bible is inspired, nothing the Bible says has any relevance or any solidarity to you. You can change it to mean anything that you want it to mean. Uh, The Bible teaches that man is born lost, and he is born in need of something. I would say, first off, that this title of acceptance implies a need. Now, this gets to the very crucial issue concerning salvation and humanity. It's interesting that there's so many people that reject Christ. I would say it's also tragic, but there's a part of me that finds it interesting. And I think that uh, our time is well spent when we examine the reasons why people reject Christ. I mean, stop and think for just a moment about the, the offer that Christ gives us. I mean, God doesn't expect us to clean ourselves up to come to Calvary. Uh, That's a plus, isn't it? Amen. Because I don't have the wherewithal to do that. God doesn't expect us to bring some sort of gift or offering uh, to Calvary uh, so that we can buy or merit uh, His salvation. That's good because I wouldn't have it. Amen. God doesn't expect me to attain some sort of status so that I can come to Calvary. He doesn't expect me to be somebody. Boy, I'm thankful because I'm nobody. Amen. Uh, What does this imply? It implies that there is a need of a Savior. And do you know that is the offense of the cross to a lost and dying world? What is it that's such a raw deal that men would reject Jesus Christ? What is it that God has ever done that would cause men uh, to push their fists out towards God to say, move away from me, I reject your offer? What is it that would cause that? It is offensive that a need is implied. People don't mind a Savior. They just don't want to admit they're a sinner. They don't want to admit they're a sinner. We live in a very prideful world. We are by nature prideful beings. Human beings are. Not by supernatural or spiritual nature, but by sin nature. We are prideful beings. And it doesn't take long to discover that. Criticize someone, you'll find out what they think about themselves. We all think a a lot of ourselves, and I'd say we all think too much of ourselves, and the Word of God warns against that. And the idea of a Savior, and only someone as magnificent as God uh, could get to the very heart of the issue and do it with such love and compassion that God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can't accept the love of God without acknowledging your need of the salvation of Jesus Christ. There's many that wish to talk about the love of God but do not want to talk about the sin problem. You cannot have both. He commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is intrinsic to the doctrine of salvation that a need is implied. A need is there. We have a need of a Savior. If you're here today, you've never been saved. You have a need of a Savior. He is the Savior of all men, the Bible says, especially of those that believe. He tasted death for every man. Why did He do that? Because there was a need for every man to have death tasted for him. I would say it implies a need, but that also implies a nature, Brother Ralph. 
What could cause the sin problem to be universal? You ever stopped and thought about that for a moment? When we consider uh, epidemics, and we don't have a lot of epidemics today. We're also hopped up on antibiotics, amen. When one finally comes along, it's going to wipe us all clean out because we're all uh, going to have our immune systems uh, have have built up against all these common viruses. And uh, I know I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, I got the antidote, so you can laugh if you want. But, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, what is it that causes an epidemic? Well, it's when there's something intrinsically wrong that is passed from person to person to person. It's how something, close contact, close proximity. Or could we say a common lineage can cause an epidemic? There are certain parts of this country, and I'm not going to pick on certain parts, I'll just leave it broad, but there are certain parts of this country you can go to and tell the gene pool's a little bit shallow. Amen? I mean, that's just the truth. There's, I mean, hey, there's places in East Tennessee like that. I mean, there's, there's places where the family tree just doesn't fork. Amen? And there's some problems that have been passed down and passed down and passed down. Those things cannot be eradicated naturally because there is a natural problem. Do you know the Bible teaches uh, that death passed upon all men? Why? Uh, in that all have sinned. How did it happen? For as by one man, one, one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men in that all have sinned. We are born with a sin nature. And the idea of a Savior that is a Savior of all men, especially of those that believe, implies that the sin problem we have is, is not a problem simply of action or exclusively of action, but rather is intrinsic to our nature. It is passed down from Adam. There's not a single person uh, born into this world other than the Son of God that was not born with a sin nature. Now, I I know some of you are saying, now, preacher, just move on. We got it. We know this. Uh, We've been taught this. But I'm trying to get you to understand that there's a lot of people talking about a Savior that don't believe what I'm telling you right now. They believe that man is inherently good. Where? What do you see in society that would lead you to believe that man is inherently good? Man left to his own devices always destroys and corrupts and kills and robs and abuses, always. The Bible gives an answer for that. The Bible gives an explanation for that. It's because when Adam sinned, and we would call that uh, idea original sin, Adam fell in the garden. He fell of his own free will and of his own free choice. He disobeyed God. And being the federal head of humanity, you say, i got a problem with that. We'll take it up with God. Because Adam was the federal head of humanity because he was the head of his home. And he was uh, the uh, first man ever to live. And because of his sin, that sin nature has then been passed down through the years. Uh, You say, how do you know so many people reject it? Listen carefully. Because so many people reject the virgin birth. How could you believe that Christ could be born without sin except you believe he did not have an earthly father? It's the only way. Isn't it wonderful how nicely packaged together the Word of God is? Almost like some, it's almost like one person wrote it, Brother Ralph, instead of a bunch of different people cobbling it together through culture. Now, it sounds like one person wrote it. I believe one person did write the Word of God. And I believe that Christ had to be born of a virgin uh, so that he would not have a sin nature. We take upon us the nature of our Father. And we have all taken upon us. Uh, and how many of you had daddies? Anyone? There's a few. Good. Wonderful. <laughs> that always makes me laugh when I ask that question. Because there's always, inevitably there's a few that go, huh? 
All right. Maybe you hatched out of an egg then. No, we all had fathers. But the Bible teaches, and, and by the way, Joseph is never called Christ's father except one time by Mary. And Mary was out of the will of God when she did that. The Bible never calls Joseph uh, Christ's father. In fact, Christ drew a stark contrast because uh, whenever uh, he was found in the temple, when he was a young man, and his mother came and, and said, your father and I have sought thee sorrowing. That's what Mary said. And she was talking about Joseph. She said, your daddy and me have been looking for you. And you know what he said? He said, how is it that you sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father, big F, father's business? What he was saying was this. He ain't my daddy. That's what he was saying. I have a heavenly father and I'm about his business. But this implies, this idea of a savior implies a need. It implies a nature. But I would say it implies a name that can be called upon. Do you know that the prophecy was given or the, the title was given? Uh, the angel spoke to them and said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And his, his earthly name meant Jehovah is salvation. Do you know that the cross was not the tragic end to a beautiful life? It was the predetermined will of God for the salvation of humanity. The Bible says there's none other name, none other name than the name of Jesus Christ. It's that name. And you say, why is it a name? Why is a name so important? Because a name denotes a person. It denotes a person. Salvation is not about principles. Salvation is not about payments. Uh, Salvation is not about the papacy. Salvation is about a person, the person of Jesus Christ. It implies if there is a Savior, it implies that there is a means or mode of salvation. There is a means of attaining this salvation and being accepted by God, and that's through calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see a Savior spoken of, and this is a title of acceptance. But I would say that next we see the name Christ that's given. This is a title of access, of access. What did it mean to be Christ? It's it's the Greek name Christos. In the Old Testament, the name Messiah was used. And it had this same idea. And I would say that this Christ that is being spoken of in Luke chapter 2 is the very Messiah that was expected all through the Word of God. The first time that he's mentioned in a prophetic sense in coming to save us from our sins is in Genesis 3.15. Uh, He is the seed uh, that will crush the head of the serpent. He is the one that would come and die for your sins and for mine. I would say that as Christ, it it represents Him as the expected one that the Old Testament spoke of. Uh, He made this statement concerning the Old Testament. He said, uh, search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which speak of me. He taught that Moses had spoken of him, and Moses did. He taught that David had spoken of him. And by the way, it, it would astonish you sometime to go through, and you can get on the internet, you can find it, you can look at certain Bible study helps and find it. Find all the times that Christ quoted Old Testament Scripture in His earthly ministry in relation to prophecy concerning Himself. All through the Word of God, you'll find Christ to be on every page. The book of Hebrews gives this thought, uh, echoing the truth of the psalmist when it says, Lo, I come, speaking of the Son of God, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. 
Oh, listen to me. I, I just I was talking to a fellow the other day, and I was sharing this with him in Sunday school. And uh, I, I was talk I was talking to him. We were debating of sorts, and uh, you know, debating is good until it turns to debunking. Then then people get upset at you. But we were talking, and we were kind of debating. And he was uh, he was trying to uh, convince me that that Christianity was not real, that it was a fairy tale. I have a heart tell him, friend. I, I, I know I know the Savior. I mean, you're not going to convince me, amen. This is a waste of your time. You're going to have to go against some, some big things in my life to ever convince me. And even if I denied him, he wouldn't deny me. But we were talking about these things, and he, he made this statement to me. And this is always, by the way, you spend enough time talking to, uh, to academics, falsely so-called, You'll find out they have certain tactics and certain go-to things that they'll go to. If they're trying to, uh, if they're trying to debunk the Word of God, they have certain things that they believe to be uh, contradictions which aren't because there are no contradictions in the Word of God. You show me one. Amen. Show me one. And they'll say, well, there's hundreds. No, I didn't ask for hundreds. Show me one that's truly a contradiction that can't be understood with a little common sense. But he, he made this statement. He said, have you ever read the story of the Egyptian god Horus? I said, yes, I have. Horus was an Egyptian god whose, whose story or whose narrative concerning his life very, very, very closely resembles that of Jesus Christ. And they will always claim, now this was written 1,300 years before Jesus Christ ever lived. So, so obviously, uh, Jesus Christ is just a, a mythical man uh, whose uh, historical narrative was built upon the story of Horus. They'll say it's old as the, the sun itself. It's nothing new. It's just a fairy tale. And I told this young man, I said, you don't realize it, but you've done nothing but establish the idea of creation to me. What? <laughs> Well, sure, because if we believe that we were just aimlessly wandering, roaming bands of ape men, completely disconnected from one another and lacking the intelligence or capacity of speech and of thought, then it would not make sense that there would be stories that replicate the idea of scriptural truths vastly spread across various cultures, Brother Ralph. Uh, why, would, why would they speak of it in Egypt and ancient Assyria and ancient Babylon? But now, if instead you believe the biblical account that God created the heaven and the earth in six days, rested on the seventh, that he had true and close fellowship with the first man, Adam, and that every single human being upon this earth is a linear descendant of Adam, then it would make sense that in some of the fellowship that Adam had with God, God probably talked about his son. God probably talked about the plan of salvation. God probably talked about that seed that would one day come. God probably talked about the Son of God that would be manifest in the flesh, that would live in this world, that would perform miracles, that would die on a rugged cross for your sins and mine. And it just makes sense that that story then would have been recycled through various pagan cultures and diluted and misrepresented. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. Uh, the idea of Jesus Christ did not begin in Bethlehem. He is the pre-existent God. He has always existed. He is not a created being, friend. He is the creator. The idea of uh, the cross of Calvary is not a New Testament ideal. It's an Old Testament prophecy that was given and fulfilled on Calvary's hill. He was the expected one, but I would say that he was the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah really means. It means the anointed one. There were several reasons that a person would be anointed. They would be anointed like David was when they would be a king. He's the king of kings. They would be anointed uh, much like Elisha was when they would become a prophet. And he was the prophet. 
But I would say that any time that the Lord added His blessings upon a person's ministry, it was in a sense anointing. The anointing in the Old Testament would have been done with oil. It was a picture of the Holy Ghost. Do you know that Christ said that there's a prophecy in Isaiah that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and hath anointed me to preach the gospel. And He said, You know, that's talking about me. Uh, Do you know that the Holy Spirit of God, of which that oil was a picture, the Bible teaches, uh, when Christ was baptized, descended upon Him in the form of a dove and rested upon Him. It did not just descend upon Him uh, and then leave Him as it done many of the Old Testament saints, but the Bible says it rested upon Him. Christ's earthly ministry did not begin until the Holy Spirit of God had anointed it. Is that all right? Everybody got kind of quiet when I said, I mean, you may not believe that. That's okay. Amen? And you can believe he healed little birds and little raccoons and everything when he was a kid and we don't know about it. But the Bible says that this beginning of miracles did Jesus at Cana of Galilee. When he was anointed by the Holy Ghost for the ministry that God had sent. You say, wasn't he God? Sure he was God. Sure he was God. But until the Holy Spirit of God was upon him, he did not perform any miracles. He did not enter into this earthly ministry. He was the anointed one. He was the one sanctioned of God. And God made a promise. He said, Thou wilt not leave thine anointed one, thine holy one, in hell. Thou wilt not suffer him uh, to see corruption. He is the one that was expected. He is the one that was anointed. But I would say as Christ, he is the one, Brother Ralph, that was appointed. You say, what do you mean, Brother Toby? I mean this. In the Old Testament, in the Aaronic, not Ironic, Aaronic priesthood, in the Levitical priesthood, uh, the priests uh, would attain their priesthood through uh, hereditary means, through lineage. It was the Levites. But do you know that the Bible teaches that Christ was not a, a priest after the order of Aaron or after the Levitical priesthood? Read the book of Hebrews. But the Bible says that he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was not a priest uh, through hereditary means uh, because the Bible says that he had no beginning of days nor end of days. Now, whatever you believe about Melchizedek, we can fight about it later, although I'm really more interested in eating than I am fighting with you. Uh, We we can talk about it later. uh, But one thing's for sure, the genealogy of Melchizedek is not found anywhere in the Word of God. We have no reason to believe that Melchizedek would have had a hereditary office as a priest, especially being that the Levitical priesthood was not even set up or established at that time. So what does that tell you? That tells you that Melchizedek was appointed by God to be a high priest. And in the very same way, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, he was appointed to be our high priest. The Bible teaches that he ever liveth and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. The idea of Christ tells me that I have access through the Messiah, through the promised one through the one that the Bible talked about, and through the one that has come and died for my sins and rose again, through that one I have access to God. I can pray to Him. I can speak to Him. I can fellowship with Him because of the Christ that has come to die for my sins. I want to give you one final one and I'm done. We have a title of acceptance. He's the Savior. We have a title of access. He's Christ. But I believe we have a title of authority. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's a title of authority. We call Him the Lord Jesus Christ very often. I fear that it's lip service for a lot of us, including myself at times in my life. Do you realize that Jesus Christ does have authority? 
Authority is not something uh, that is just given. Uh, Authority is something that is vested in someone. It's not something just a token passed back and forth, but it's something intrinsic to your office. And Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, as the Savior of man, as the Christ, as the King of kings, as the God of gods, He is also Lord of lords. This speaks three things to me, and I'm done. I would say, first off, it speaks of a resurrection. A Lord is not a Lord unless He's living to be Lord. Isn't that true? A Lord is not Lord unless He's living to be Lord. His authority means nothing if He's dead and cannot exercise it. His authority means nothing if He can have no relevant and meaningful impact in the lives of others. And do you know that when Jesus Christ died for your sins, He may have died as a lamb led to the slaughter, but He resurrected as the Lord of glory, triumphant over the grave. He rose from the dead. His authority speaks of a resurrection. But I would say that it speaks of a right. A right. That's what authority means. Authority means you have certain rights. Certain things you can exercise, regardless of the opinion of others. Uh, If I tell you I have authority, and I'll say sometimes when I'm marrying people, I'll say, uh, by the power or by the authority vested in me by the state of Tennessee. It's not really vested in me by the state of Tennessee, by the way. Right? And you say, that don't matter, preacher. It it may one of these days, when they come knocking on my door like they did that cake bakers and saying, you're going to do those things for homosexuals and sodomites, just like you will for heterosexual people, it may make a difference because the state may quit sanctioning what I do. Amen? I wonder how many of us Christians would be willing uh, to, in the state's eyes, live with separate last names, but in God's eyes be married and intertwined before Him if the state would not sanction a man of God to marry people unless he married sodomites. It's going to get real intense one of these days, friends. We're going to have to make some decisions one of these days. But I'll say by the power vested in me. That means I have certain rights. I can perform certain things. I remember talking to the youth pastor, or not to the youth pastor, but the associate pastor at the church I grew up at. And this was a church that at one time was very large. One time they ran over a thousand people. And it was a, it was a massive church at one time, very big. And it was kind of the church in the sense of independent Baptist churches in town. And this associate pastor had been there for, I don't know, four, five hundred years or something like that. And I asked him one time, his name was Brother Albert. And I, we were talking about uh, ordination and stuff, and he said, well, I've never been ordained. And, and I asked him, I said, Brother Albert, why have you never been ordained? He said, if I got ordained, I might have to marry people. <laughs> and he said, as it is right now, he, he said, and you know how people are when they pull you in close and they're telling you something, and if you betray that confidence, they really will kill you. That's how this old man looked at me. He said, I'm going to tell you a secret. He said, in the state of Tennessee, if you minister to more than 20 people a week, On a consistent basis, you can marry people. He pulled me close and said, Now, you ever tell anybody that, I'm going to call you a liar. (laughs) It means you have certain rights if you have that authority. You, You can do some, you can exercise some things. Do you know that Jesus Christ has the right over your life and mine? He has the right. We don't like that term. I fear, now listen carefully and don't count me a heretic, because I appreciate liberty. I believe that, that a democratic republic and capitalism are the greatest forms of man-made government that can exist in, in society. I, I believe that. But can I say that I believe that a culture of liberty has sometimes spoiled us? Because we believe it's our life, it's our choice, it's our ideas. Nobody can tell me what to do. And can I say this? I very much support that in the realm of government. 
But the government that God exercises over our life is absolute. He has the right to you, and He has the right to me. You Listen, a dead man has no rights. You lost your rights when you died on Calvary. You're risen again, and you belong to Him. But I would say it speaks of a third thing. I'd say it speaks not only of a resurrection, not only of a right, but I'd say if someone's Lord, I mean, this makes sense to me, it speaks of a reign. You say, what do you mean? I mean a, a, a throne. I mean a kingdom. I, I don't mean a, a symbolic kingdom, because a symbolic kingdom means nothing. Amen? I mean a literal, real kingdom. Do you know the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is just that. He is the King of kings as well as the Lord of lords. You know that the Bible teaches, and I know this may separate me from some people, but I'm going to preach it anyway because I believe it's Bible. Do you know that the Bible teaches that one day Christ, when He returns in power and in glory to this earth, is going to set up on this earth His kingdom? Now, that's radical to some people. And I used to, my old pastor used to always joke about some people say, I'm going to heaven, I'm never coming back. He'd say, you're going to be awful lonely up there. Because the Bible teaches that Christ is setting up an earthly kingdom upon this earth with Jerusalem as its headquarters. I don't care if the dome or the rock is there, the rock's coming back. I ain't worried about the dome of the rock because the rock is coming back. And he's going to set up his kingdom. It will be a literal kingdom. It will be an earthly kingdom. It will be a kingdom that will reign unchallenged for a thousand years. Then there's going to be a little little snuff of an uprising. You know what God's going to do? He's going to consume them with fire out of the heavens. The Bible teaches that there will be a bright and shining white city, a new Jerusalem ascending from heaven out uh, from God that will set up upon this earth. You say, I never heard that, preacher. That's all right. It's still in the Bible. It's in yours. If you've got a King James Bible, open it and read it. It's in privilege knowledge. Read the back of the book. It's there. And that God will reign eternally upon this earth. You say, what does it mean that He's Lord? It means that He has the government of my life. But it means also that whether I like it or not, He will one day have the government of this world. The Bible says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulders. Like it or not, friend, like it or not, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Whether we like it, whether we admit it, whether these infidels want to admit it or not, what an earth-shattering day that will be when all these people that knew they're wanting to God, and and, and then God just up and shows up. (laughs) How rude. Amen. What a day that will be. I look forward to the return of the Lord of glory. And I hope that you in your life have accepted Him not only as Savior, and I hope you have accepted Him as Savior, but I hope that you are exercising the privilege you have with Him as your Christ, as your High Priest. And I hope that you have given Him the government of your life as He is your Lord. And I hope that you're looking forward to the return of our Lord and Savior.